Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Jackie Miller and I have the privilege of being the principal at Stonebrook Montessori. I am also a proud supporter of the City Club and grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, I am here and I um, stand in a space of intersectionality. Um, I'm a black woman. I am an educator. I am a public educator. I am a Montessorian and I am an advocate for educating the human potential. I am honored to introduce today's speaker, Associate Professor in the Department of Educational Theory and Practice at the University of Georgia, and author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching in the Pursuit of Educational Freedom, Sister Dr. Love. <laughs> um, I first heard Bettina Love speak uh, about a year and a half ago, and that was at a conference in Atlanta, ATL. And there were two things that she said that stu stood out to me. She said that black people are geniuses of civics. We are civic geniuses. I'm gonna let her tell you more about that. And the other thing that she said was that education has a responsibility to fundamentally change in order to educate the innate human potential of dark children. Recent education research suggests that children do better in class when they, are, when they have shared identities with their teachers, especially in regard to race. In the United States, the majority of students in public schools are children of color, while most of, the, while most of their teachers are white, and their principals too. Recognizing oneself in their mentor is an important step for young students in making and accomplishing goals. How can we remedy the disparity to set up all of our children and students to succeed. It's this dynamic that Dr. Love explores in her new book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. In it, she argues for dismantling tweaks to curriculum and testing that perpetuate inequity in, in favor um, in school, excuse me, she argues for dismantling tweaks to education and testing that perpetuate inequity in school in favor of what she calls abolitionist teaching, which draws on the history of the 19th century abolitionist movement, focusing on integrating lessons on racial violence, oppression, resistance, and social change in the classroom. In addition, her research and teachings include hip-hop education, hip-hop feminism, anti-blackness in schools, black girlhood, and queer youth, as well as other issues of diversity, inclusion, and social justice. An award-winning author, Dr. Love was the inaugural rep 
recipient of the Michael F. Adams Award for the University of Georgia in 2014 and was invited to speak on her work on the lives of black girls at the White House Research Conference on Girls. She was named the Nasir Jones Hip Hop Fellow of 2016 at Harvard University and was presented with a resolution from the, House of, from the Georgia House of Representatives in 2018 for her impact on the field of education. On behalf of a team of amazing co-conspirators at Stonebrook Montessori and across Greater Cleveland, I am proud, pleased, and grateful to welcome Dr. Love to Cleveland, esteemed guests, members, and friends at the City Club of Cleveland. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bettina Love to the stage. Thank you. How y'all doing? Y'all look good. Oh, I just want to take a quick second before I, I get into my remarks to just really thank uh, Stonebrook Montessori for having me, the vision to bring me here, Dr. Aki for all the work that you do in the community, and also just to be at a space that really upholds what the best of us are, and that's our ideas and who we are. And so to speak um, at an organization that wants to bring about ideas for justice, I'm just honored to be here. And the conversation I want to have with you all today is about what it means to teach black and brown children and the beauty of teaching black and brown children. And I want to argue today that something that we have fundamentally said about education is not correct. And that's the idea that you have to love black and brown children to teach them. I want to dispel that myth today. I don't think you have to love black and brown children to teach them. I think you should first respect them. That's how you show that you love something, is when you respect something. And so the idea is that, oh, I love black and brown children, but you know nothing about us. And so if you walk into the classroom as an educator, and you don't know the beauty that you have in front of you, you don't know the resiliency that you have in front of you, the grit, all of these things they like to say, if you don't know that you have that in the classroom, you don't have to teach that, you actually got it, then you can't teach our babies. And so today I want to have a conversation about what it means for this idea of abolitionist teaching. And I want to start with the words of Nikki Giovanni. And she says it best. Style has a profound meaning to black Americans. If we can't drive, we'll live in walks, and the world will envy the dexterity of our feet. If we can't have ham, we'll bowl chillings. If we are giving scraps, we'll make rotten peaches. If we are giving scraps, we'll make, if we're giving rotten peaches, we'll make cobblers. If we're giving scraps, we'll make quilts. Take away our drums and we will clap our hands. We prove the human spirit will prevail. We will take what we have to make what we need. We need confidence. We need confidence in our knowledge of who we are. And I would argue that that's education right there. That is what it has to be about. Our babies need confidence in who they are. And if schools cannot do this, then schools are not doing what they're supposed to do and need to do for black and brown children. Because the idea, and please understand that as a person of color, it's not just about grades and test scores. When you are a person of color in this country, grades and test scores only take you so far. You actually have to know who you are. And so the idea is what she is saying is that we need confidence in the knowledge of who we 
are. And that's what we need teachers to be doing. But you can't do this if you know nothing about us. So the idea is that how do we have programs that are stronger? And so I argue in my book that we have something called a teacher education gap, which means that you can become a teacher, leave with a four-year degree, and not even take one class about black and brown folks. And then you're going to walk into the classroom, and then when you do take that one class, maybe that one class on diversity, you learn nothing but the ills of black and brown children. They got a gap for everything. You got an achievement gap. You got a word gap. So you leave never, ever understanding that the genius is right in front of you. And so we have to change that narrative. So the conversation has to be, what do you see when you see us? What do you see when you actually see us? Now, the photo that I'm showing you is a photo by a great artist out of Detroit. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote, he drew this thing called white vision glasses. And the idea is that if you can't see the greatness in front of you, then you really can't teach us. And this is a picture inspired by the murder of Stephon Clark. He was a young man uh, on the phone behind his grandmother's house, and they believed that that cell phone somehow was a gun. So the conversation has to be that when our black boys and our brown girls, and we walk into the classroom with all our joy and all our swag, and if you can't see the greatness, you only see that, then you can't teach us. You don't love us. You don't know anything about us. So I argue that what we're doing in schools every day that deny black folks existence, when the system is inherently set up to be anti-black, then you are murdering our baby spirits. And the spirit murdering comes out of the work of Patricia Williams, who's a critical race theorist. And she says that racism is more than just numbers. And when we talk about racism in this country, we talk about it in numbers. Well, we have this, this many teachers who are white, and we have this many students who are black, and we have the mass incarceration. And we, we talk about it in numbers. But we don't talk about the real, everyday lives of children and how being in a system that is fundamentally racist murders your spirit. And spirit murdering is a slow death. It's a methodical death, but it is a death of the soul. And we need to start having that conversation in our schools. How are we not, how are we uplifting the souls of our babies? How are we talking deeply about making sure they are and will become who they want to be in this world? But in a system that slowly takes you out, when you don't see yourself, when you don't see your culture, when you only learn about oppression, but never how your people resist it. When schools are set up as prisons, you are murdering our babies' spirits. And I talk about this in the book. So I say that we have what we call an education, an educational survival complex, which really just mirrors the prison industrial complex. So the idea is that everybody's making money off the idea that black and brown children are deficient. So it started with Native Americans, 1879 at the Carlisle School, where they told Native Americans, your hair, your language, your ways of knowing, got to go. Assimilate, 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 which is code for be white, be white, be white. By 1880, in this country, we're talking about English-only education. That didn't start 25 years ago. <laughs> By 1896, they told us separate but equal. That makes no sense. By 1906, you have segregated schools for 
Chinese, Japanese, and Korean students. And by 1954, you have this unbelievable case called Brow versus the Board of Education. And this is a really pivotal case in, in education because it shifted who taught our babies. Pre-Brown, many folks, particularly in the South, who had higher education were teachers. After Brown, we lost between 15 to 20,000 black educators after Brown. Gone. Gone. And so the idea is that how do you get a teaching force that is now 88% white? It's not happenstance. And we got a teaching force that's 88% white, but did not know that we used to teach our babies. And so the ideas about how this works, we have to think deeply about what it means to be a teacher. What does it mean to train a teacher? What are the skills and the experiences and the disposition a teacher needs to go into the classroom with black and brown children in a system that is set up for our babies not to achieve? Uh, now we move to like the colored pictures. And you have this thing in 1980 called Character Matters. So you have an influx of character education that's happening. Why do you have character education? Because you have an influx of white folks teaching black and brown children. And it's always about our character. And I argue that the oppressor has no business telling you about your character. <laughs> By 1989, you have this thing called Teach for America, which I'm probably pretty hard in the book. I call it Teach for America Educational Parasites. But I say that <laughs> because the idea is this. Teach for America says, listen, when you leave here, you will be ready to go to the next phase of your life. You go off to medical school or graduate school or law school. You know what? Find yourself. And while you're finding yourself, you were actually teaching black and brown children with no experience while you find yourself. That's educational malpractice. By 1991, you have charter schools. And let me say this, I'm not against charter schools, but we have to be honest about what charter schools are and how they're functioning in this country. They are functioning as a mechanism for gentrification. And we gotta be real and honest about that. By 2000, you have no child left behind, that leaves every child behind. And by 2008, you have corporate school reformers. You can't be a corporate school reformer. You're either trying to work on justice or make money. You can't do both. <laughs> you can't do both. You have hedge fund operators, the testing industry, the prison industry, all of these industries that are making money off the idea that our babies are deficient. How does this work? The testing industry will get, sell you the test. Your babies don't pass the test, we'll sell you the test prep. We'll sell you all the benchmarks so you can see if it just goes on and on and on and on. So they're making money off the idea that we're deficient. Very similar to the prison industrial complex, they marry each other and then at points of conversion, they work for each other's favor. And we gotta be able to see that and able to name that. So what do we do? I think there are times that call for the work of Audre Lorde. There are times that call for Toni Morrison and Bell Hooks. And there are times that call for people like Uncle Jimmy, <laughs> James Baldwin. And James Baldwin says it best. Let's begin by saying that we're living through very dangerous times. 
Everyone in this room is in some way or another aware of that. When a revolutionary situation, no matter how unpopular that word has become in this country, to any citizen of this country who figures himself as responsible, and particularly for those who deal with the hearts and the minds of young people, must be prepared to go for broke. Or put it another way, you must understand that an attempt to correct so many generations of bad faith and cruelty, when it is operating not only in the classroom but in society, you'll be met with the most fantastic, the most brutal, and the most determined resistance. There's no point in pretending that this won't happen. So Uncle Jimmy is saying, listen, everybody in this room understands that we, are, we, we got some issues. And Uncle Jimmy said this in 1963. 1963. But Uncle Jimmy says, listen, that anybody in this room, and this is why the work of anti-racism is so important, but it's hard, arduous work. And there's no solutions that are just here and tangible. Because Uncle Jimmy makes it plain. You will be met with the most fantastic, the most brutal resistance. And so if you figure yourself someone who wants to do anti-racist work, then you must understand that you better prepare yourself for struggle. I'm not saying you wake up in the morning, you want struggle. Like, oh, I can't wait. It's low. Struggle. <laughs> what I'm saying is that if you figure yourself anti-racist, then you better prepare to struggle. If you figure yourself anti-racist and everybody likes you, you're not anti-racist. <laughs> You're not, you're not doing anti-racist work. That's not how this works. So the job of being anti-racist is making folks uncomfortable, is speaking truth to power. And you may lose some friends, you may lose some family members. But we're talking about humanity. And so Uncle Jimmy is saying it's time to go for broke. And so I'm arguing today that education can't save us, we have to save education. And what do I mean by that is that when educate, well, thank you. What I mean by that, is when education is mimicking the outside world and not better than the outside world, we have a problem. We have a problem. So, be an abolitionist. Now, why abolitionist? Number one, I also study hip hop. And the one thing about studying hip hop is that you always want to put your city on. <laughs> and I am from the forgotten. I'm from upstate New York. Now, the one thing about being an upstate New Yorker is that you automatically walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Because <laughs> nobody knows where you are from. When you say you're from upstate New York, folks, Queens? You're like, no, no. Poughkeepsie? No! You know what? Canada. I'm two hours from the Canadian border, six and a half hours from New York City, Canada. But I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in Rochester, New York. Come on, the rock, the rock is always in the building. I don't care where I go in the world. Like, Rochester, somebody always in the back, though. I don't know why. They always trying to put Rochester in the back. See how they do us? You know, I'm just saying. But we did amazing things as upstate New Yorkers. I grew up 2.5 miles from where Frederick Douglass wrote the North Star. 60 miles away in, in Auburn, New York, and Harriet Tubman. The Underground Railroad freed 100,000 enslaved Africans. I said, I didn't say slave, I said enslaved. They didn't ask to be slaves. But they freed, the Underground Railroad freed over 100,000 enslaved Africans. 
And the beauty about abolitionists was that they were just regular people. They were everyday people, just like us in this room right now. They were teachers, they were lawyers, they were farmers, they were doctors, sanitation workers, they were white, they were Native American, they were black, they were indigenous, who decided enough was enough. And they got together to abolish something. And what makes abolitionists so important to me and why I wanted to study abolitionists is because they were determined to abolish something they knew they would not see the end to. To work every day as if abolishing slavery was right around the corner. So what would it mean for us to fight every day like abolishing racism is right around the corner? That it's in, our, it, it's, it's, it's in the wind, it's right there. To work like that. That's why abolitionists were so important. And then the idea that they were going to do it for somebody else's children. That's the beauty to me of, of being an abolitionist. But then also, they were methodical. They weren't just whimsical, like, oh! They were methodical. They were strategic. You think about this. There was no Facebook, no Instagram, no, no Twitter. Somebody came to your house with a password, and you put it on the line. You put it on the line for somebody else's life. We did that as a country, us. And so we can never, get, we can never just let that go. And so as everybody's saying, abolish this, abolish that, we got to understand what it means to do abolitionist work. And one of the first things I want you to understand to be, to do abolitionist work is to be a co-conspirator. We have enough allies. We need co-conspirators. And what is a co-conspirator? The time-consuming and serious critique and reflection of one's social cultural heritage, which includes identities related to race, ethnicity, family structure, sexuality, class, abilities, and religion, taken side by side with a critical analysis of racism, sexism, White supremacy, whiteness, is the groundwork of being a co-conspirator. So as my mother would say, I want to show you better than I can tell you. I want to tell you a story. In 2005, Bree Newsom decided to take down the Confederate flag. But what we don't talk about, and I tell the story in the book, is how that flag came down. Some folks got together who did not know each other and said that flag had to come down. And then they said, a black woman has to take it down. They taught Brie Newsom how to climb, got her climbing gear, had her bell money ready. <laughs> money ready. And they decided that day, eight days after Dylan Roof did the most cowardly thing we know, shoot up the AME church, they said that flag is coming down. And they took it down. But what we don't talk about is the young man that was with Bree Newsom that day. And his name is James Tyson. Now let me tell you why James Tyson was there. At one point, the police threatened to tase me. James Tyson, who was later arrested with me, grabbed the pole and told them that they have electrocuted me, they would have to electrocute him too. Others who were standing around watching yelled at the cops not to do so. So in the video, when you hear me frequently reassuring the police that the actions are nonviolent civil disobedience, this is why. That day, they decided that to get Bree Newsom down off the flagpole, they would simply have to electrocute her. Now, why is James Tyson there? There is no coincidence that James Tyson is there. James Tyson was there to be a white man. He was there to be a white man. He was there to use his privilege. 
He did not have to make a speech. He didn't have to make a big C. And he saved that woman's life. So to be a co-conspirator is to put something on the line, to take a risk, a small risk, a big risk. But to be a co-conspirator and why it's not an ally is because to be a co-conspirator means I'm going to understand how this world works. And I'm going to use my privilege when I need to use my privilege for other people. That's the difference between allyship. Because an ally would have went with Bree and stood outside the gate. <laughs> Bree! <laughs> Come on, Bree, let's go, let's go. Bree, they coming, Bree! <laughs> That's what an ally would have done. A co-conspirator says, Hi, hold on, I'm here for a reason. It's not a coincidence that is a white man with her. And so we're asking you to use your privilege. You, oh, I want to do anti-racist work. What do I do? You got all that privilege. Use it. Spend it. Don't ask us what to do. We know, we, you know what to do. Use your privilege. You got disparities in everything in this country. So if you are a person in all of these different areas of privilege, and you know that black women and brown women are not being paid, and you are the CEO of the country, don't ask what to do. Give them their money. <laughs> the idea is that you leverage your privilege in a way in which that will liberate people. No one can tell you what to do. No one can tell you how to do it. But what you have is an advantage, an unfair advantage that you did not earn. So use it. Spend it up. As the kids say, cash out. <laughs> because that's what it means to do anti-racist work. And then you got a freedom dream with us. And freedom dreams are not just whimsical dreams. They're dreams in solidarity with each other, where we demand what they say is impossible. That means you don't ask for $15. You ask for $75 and see where you land. We have to have theory. Why theory? I call theory your North Star. Because theory grounds you. Say, oh, you know what? I'm looking at children, and I'm looking at communities, and ah, I don't, I'm starting to blame them. Oh, theory says, ah, oh, that's racism. <laughs> ah, we, ah, that's sexism. Like, you need theory. It grounds you. It's your North Star. And don't forget black women. We've done this work. We've given playbooks. Black women have been the organizers, the teachers, the mamas, the community. Or I mean, we've done it all. We've done it all. Look at this country. Whenever there's a big problem, who they going to get next? Come clean it up. Don't forget us. We do the work. Next, we got to be accountable. And accountable to each other, not in the ideas of accountability of teacher ed, but accountable for human suffering accountable to each other for the ways in which we behave, the way in which we let each other's down, to apologize and to come back the next day and say, I can be better. That's the work. All of us will get it wrong, myself included. And it's to come back and say, oh, you know what? What I did yesterday wasn't right. And it won't happen again, and I'm sorry. That's, what, that's the work of anti-racism, is apologizing. To, for, human, for humanity, you have to apologize and accept that and do better. That's what we want, so be accountable to each other. So abolitionist teaching is built on the creativity, the imagination, the boldness, 
ingenuity and the rebellious spirit and methods of abolitionists to demand and fight for an educational system where all students, all students, are thriving, not simply surviving. And I'll close by saying this. Understand that abolitionist teaching is not just for black children. Anti-racist education is not just for black and brown children. This is about our humanity. It's about all of us. And so it doesn't just need to be in black schools or brown schools. It actually needs to be in the white schools. So they can grow up from a very young age learning about what it means of justice, what love really means and kindness really means and empathy really means and what equity really means. And those ideas need to be challenged with our sons at a very young age. And so I'm asking you all to understand that when we ask for black education or brown education, we're asking for culturally relevant pedagogy, we're asking for all of these things, know that you're included in that conversation. Because to make this world a better world, to make it a more just world, and to make it a world that our children actually deserve, it's all of us. It's all of us. And so the work of being an abolitionist teacher is the idea that we are going to dismantle together injustice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank y'all. Thank y'all. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank y'all. Thank y'all. Rock! <laughs> thank y'all. I appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. For our radio audience, that was a standing ovation. It was extended. <laughs> I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, and today we are fortunate uh, to be enjoying a forum with Dr. Bettina Love. She's the Associate Professor, an Associate Professor in the Department of Educational Theory and Practice at the University of Georgia, also the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. It's time for a Q&A. May we have our first question, please? I know there are questions. I, there we go, right there. Hi. Um, can you talk a little about um, maybe implicit messages, unintentional messages that white teachers might be conveying if they don't know about um, and I don't know how you, the right term, it's so AAL or African American language, that it's a very advanced dialect, mm -hmm. practically another language, and it's something that should be valued and respected as one of those signs of resilience and mm -hmm. strength. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of people who don't, I've only recently learned more about it, and, and I can see how some people might not, they might look at children a certain way, speaking that way, and see it as a deficit, not mm -hmm. as a strength. Yeah. So how do we address that? Uh, can you speak to that a yeah. bit, please? Thank you for your question. So, um, you know, what you're talking about is African-American dialect, African-American language, and the ways in which we use that. And so a teacher may see that as a deficit, which means they don't know our history, because this is not our language. So if you think about it, and that's the beauty to me of what it means to be an African-American, a black person in this country is that we have taken a language that's not ours, land that's not ours, and we have done impossible things. And so when you say to a child, well, why do you speak like that? Or is, is that the proper way you speak? You're actually saying something about my culture. 
You're saying something about who I am and where I come from. And so teachers have to understand that there are ways in which to correct that that do not have to be demonstrative. And so I always try to have teachers understand that, listen, there are tools that our students need. And language is a tool that they need. And the idea that they speak two languages, idea that they can go between these worlds and say, hello, or what's up? Right, that has to be seen in a way that's not from a deficit model, but from an idea that they are going back and forth, which is a very smart and clever and thoughtful thing to do. And so you can say, hey, listen, there's a, there's a few other ways you can say that. Let me show you. Let me talk to you about that. I'll give you an example. I'm from Rochester, New York. We don't say ask. We say ax. <laughs> I got to ax you a question. <laughs> what our babies say. Right? And someone said to me one day, I was, it was a one of my friends, she said, uh, do you want to chop my head off? I said, what do you mean? She said, are you going to chop my head off? You just said ax. I had never heard it before. I was 20 years old. I had never heard the difference because I grew up with folks who spoke like I spoke. Now, I'll tell you that story because when I go back home, you better believe I say ax. <laughs> Yo, let me ask you something. <laughs> I don't feel any less intelligent that I can go back and forth in these worlds. And so teachers need to know that. Thank you for your question. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> my, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the uh, Ohio Board of Education. And there's 19 members. I'm the only K-12 teacher. There's only three people of color. And I'm the only teacher of color. The other two aren't teachers. But my point is, it is so hard when I talk about culturally responsive curriculum and everything that you've talked about. So could you really um, expound on what you said, how this is important for all children, and we're not just talking about black schools or African-American children, but how all children benefit mm -hmm. from, from culturally responsive curriculum? Yeah, thank you for your thank question. You. So it's 2019. We have over almost 30 years of data that shows that when students walk into the classroom and are learning in the ways in which that are culturally relevant, and culturally relevant means this, not that Rashid had two apples and Demetrius had three apples, how many apples did they have? <laughs> That's not what we mean by culturally relevant pedagogy. It's not what we mean. We are <laughs> we are <laughs> we are talking about teaching a child through their actual culture, which means you learn about who you are, you learn about your history, you learn about where you're from, you learn about your community, you learn about what makes you beautiful, you learn about how beautiful your skin color is, you learn about the world. You see the world and you understand the world has political and social and emotional and environmental issues that we can address. So to be culturally relevant means that I'm also going to use my students' first language in the classroom, their home language. I'm going to bring in people that look like them in the classroom, to have conversations. It's about a community approach to education. And so to be culturally relevant is to say, I'm going to teach the whole child, right? But I would argue that white schools do have culturally 
relevant pedagogy. When you are at a school where the teachers look like you and the curriculum looks like you and everybody sounds like you, you are getting a culturally relevant curriculum. And that curriculum propels you to think that school is safe and school is normal and learning is what you should be doing. But the thing about culturally relevant pedagogy is that Gloria Latson Billings outlined the three tenets. And that third tenet of culturally relevant pedagogy, she said, push to dismantle the status quo. And nobody wants to do that in culture. That everybody, you know, that representation and channel, everybody likes that. But that third bullet, and that's also, and so that's why it's important that culturally relevant pedagogy is in all schools. But it has that third bullet that we push and we push to dismantle the status quo. We push and we push to change and dismantle schooling that does not represent everybody, that is not warm and kind and loving and thoughtful to everyone. It doesn't take everybody's perspectives and who they are into account. And so, account, so the idea of culturally relevant pedagogy simply is to say, I'm going to educate the whole child. And I'm going to educate their community. And I'm going to try to get them on, to, to see the beauty of who they are in the school. Because their community is telling them how beautiful they are. But I want to see it in the school because if I see how beautiful I am in the school, then I understand that academics is a part of who I am. It's not, it's not, it's not, I can, oh no, it's, it's all together. So that's what it's about. And so we need all schools to take on this idea of culturally relevant pedagogy, of culturally sustaining pedagogy, to understand that we are better when we all know about each other, when we are learning from each other. So the first time a black child opens up a textbook, they see themselves as a slave. The first time a white child opens up a textbook and see a person of color, they see them as a slave. We got problems on each side. Just think about that. That is a power dynamic as soon as you open up the book. So culturally relevant pedagogy wants to shift that power dynamic from the very beginning for both groups. So when they open up the textbook and they see people of color, it's not as slaves. Because you're automatically setting up a power dynamic and the babies are five years old. And the first time I actually see them in my book as a white child, I see them as slaves. That's why this thing is so important. Thank you. Up next, we have a Twitter question. Oh, Twitter. Dr. Love, can you speak to unco unconscious bias, how it affects our education system, and what we can do to address it? Thank you. Okay. Um, In the book, I'm very, I'm, I'm very explicit that I omitted unconscious bias. I don't like the term. I don't like microaggressions. Um, <laughs> right? I don't. That jacket, though. Let me get one of those. But I don't. I don't. Let me come. I don't. Um, I, I just. I just don't. I, I understand. I understand the science behind it. I understand the theory behind it. But I would just say this. We are, we are in a space where everybody wants to call racism something else but racism. So I, 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 don't, I don't use those, those words in the book. And, I, and, I, and that's intentional. So when you do something to me that's racist, it's racist. I'm not thinking, oh, that's, well, she, that was unconscious. <laughs> 
Right? That was unconscious. It's unconscious. No. Start on, to me, it's, it's real. And so that's why you know, I try not to use those words, because we have to be able to call out racism and name it. And when you don't do that, you let everybody off the hook. And so that, that's how I kind of feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Love, I so appreciate your passion about the importance of educating our black and brown children. And when you talk about abolitionist responsibilities as it relates to the educational system, a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to talk about testing. So testing in our current format is spirit killing for our black and brown children. So do you have any strategies that we can do capability assessments for our children that is, um, it's spirit enhancing instead <laughs> yeah. of uh, spirit killing. Yeah. Um, that's a big question. Very big question. And um, that can go on for days. But I'll just try and just say a few things. Um, I talk about it in the book. I think one place we have to watch is Seattle. There's a lot of great stuff going on in Seattle. Seattle students just protested the first day of school. They're like, we out. <laughs> school. <laughs> I mean, they're really, Seattle has been on the forefront of Black Lives Matters in schools. They've been on the forefront of protesting testing and teachers saying, no, we're not going to do that. And so there's a playbook that Seattle's creating right now of how parents get together with teachers and officials and say enough is enough. And so I think Seattle is one of those places that we should be watching. Um, I also think when we, when we think about testing and how it's, it's killing our baby souls, we have to help parents understand laws. And I, I don't know Ohio laws, but you can opt out of testing in some of these states. And so you, 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 you can. You can opt your child out of testing. So it, it's about state laws. And so we, we got to make sure that parents know their rights for their child. And so that's one thing that I say educators should be teaching and principals and folks who are against testing. What are the laws around testing? What can they actually do? And if they can't really do anything, let's go. So we, we have to be thinking about what, what that means for our kids. And I would say that the last thing is um, I'm a big fan of Derrick Bell. Derrick Bell was a critical race theorist, and he, he had this idea of entrance convergence. And he said that when, when black folks and white folks' interests converge, there can be some type of leverage. And what we're seeing right now, and that's why Seattle is a case, is because we've been saying that these tests are trash for a very long time. But guess who's failing the test now, too? So they're like, get these tests out of here. Entrance convergence. So white parents and black parents and brown parents get together on this issue. This is an issue that we all really agree on. And if you look at some of the top schools in the country, they're doing away with SAT testing. And so there, there's a lot of momentum around this right now. And I think we're in our silos about it, not understanding that this is actually an issue that we can cut through all of us that we can agree on, where you could have conservatives and Republicans and liberals and everybody be like, you know what, yeah. And when you have an issue like that, you got to run with it. And I think testing actually is one of those issues. 
And now you talk about how do we get something different. I think the first thing we have to do is trust teachers. Right? We have to put the profession back in the hands of the educators. So I believe that districts and schools should find the best way in which to measure the abilities or what's lacking or what needs growth in their schools. I don't think we should have outside folks do that because when you have outside folks do that, that's capitalism. And it's never going to be done right. And I'm fine with every school district having their own testing because that's what you're your school district. So I think we have to come up with innovative ways to think about but give the power to parents and communities and school board members who want to do that particular type of work. Good afternoon. My name is Dolores McCollum. I'm a retired Cleveland teacher and a graduate of Spelman College. Come on now. My, <laughs> my um, question to you is, have you had the opportunity, and if not, can you address the fact that many of the uh, HBCUs are doing away with their uh, education, education programs? Program. Mm -hmm. And that is a core source of uh, African-American teachers, not the only, but mm -hmm. a big source. So um, can you address that particular issue? I think about my brother's school, Morehouse College, and I think they have no education courses. And this idea that um, education is kind of somewhere beneath the other professions without realizing education is the mother of all professions. Mm -hmm. um, can you address how we can get it back to a um, more acceptable level? at the HBCU schools? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. You know what? I really don't know because it's a hard sell to be an educator. It's a hard sell. And we know HBCUs are private, so uh, they are quite expensive, some of them. So it's hard for me to tell a child or a young person, excuse me, uh, to tack on $80,000, $100,000 worth of debt um, for something that's going to pay you $33,000 before taxes. And so I think schools are making an economic decision and not a decision that's the best for a community. And so I think there has to be some partnerships between schools and communities to bring that profession back. So what I mean by that, and the government, if you want to go into education, then you, 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 you got to go to school for free. All right? You, you got you to go to school for free. It just, you, you can't. You know, you just can't ask someone to, to take up that, that debt that we know right now, you know, $80,000 worth of debt. You will be paying that off for almost 30 to 40 years. It's just unconscionable. So I think that these schools are just making a very economic decision. And I think the parents are making an economic decision. I did not send you here to make $30,000 a year. <laughs> I did not send you here to a profession that I hear on the nightly news that teacher did this, teacher did that, scan. So I think we, it has to be a, a, a group of folk with some real money and real interest that want to see education back at HBCUs and are going to really say, OK, here's a department. Or right, 
Spelman. Spelman surrounded by Georgia State, Kennesaw, UGA, right? Can you take classes at our ed school and still be at Spelman and do some things like that? And we do have some partnerships like that at UGA and other schools, but not to a, 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 a very wide, grand scale level. So I think we have to think about partnerships a little bit more. But I, I do, it's a complicated issue because until we get a handle on student debt, I don't know what anybody should go into right now. Because this is, this is a lot to take on. And I, I, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think older generations understand what, what's, what's happening right now with student loans. You know, when students are 22 years old leaving with $100,000 worth of debt, you're not gonna get kids to go into teaching that way. And so this is, this is a larger issue. And also we have to professionalize the field more. Right? If I'm the first person in my college to go, my family to go to school, I want, I want, I want to come out and do a little something. <laughs> right? you, know, you know, we like to be a little flashy out here. I want to do a little something. Right? And so, so we also, it's our obligation you know, to mentor. Like where are the mentor programs in high school for folks who want to become teachers? Uh, we, we, there's a lot of infrastructure, I think, that has to be built so those individuals who do want to be teachers feel loved, feel compassion. I mean, right now, there's a lot of great articles going around. We are in a teacher exodus, not a teacher shortage right now. I forgot what state it was. Oh, forgive me. Florida. They started the school needing 3,000 teachers in Florida. They started the school year needing 3,000 teachers. That means we're doing a bad job of making this a profession that individuals really want. Just really quickly, I have two friends that want to be teachers. Um, and they looked at the salary and they're like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And they're really good people that I know would be amazing educators, two black males. The teaching population right now, less than 2% of all teachers are black males. And we say, oh, that's a problem, but where's it? we don't incentivize it. Right? Dr. King said that your, your checkbook is your moral compass. So if, if we're really real about this, where's the money? But yeah, I think, I think it's just a, it's a difficult, difficult uh, solution with student debt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've told my old children I'm not paying for undergrad degree. I done told them now. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Love. Hi. I don't even know why I stood up. You know, I'm the same height. Sit down and stand <laughs> up. Um, can I hold it? Is it, is it can I hold it? Is it oh, oop, 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 and I oop. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> my name is Erin. I am a doctoral student at Case Western Reserve University and affiliate with the Ellipsis Institute. Yes. So, over here at Table 10. Um, and my research focuses on the uh, sociology of higher education. So, um, I'm looking at how we can um, provide more equitable situations and spaces and programming for queer graduate students of color, right? So in the spirit of intersectionality and what the Ellipsis Institute stands for and me as a, a womanist, as somebody that's queer, as somebody that's poly, I know that we can't isolate our identities in that mm -hmm. way. And so my question is kind of multi-tiered. Um, one, it's about uh, spirit murdering. And, you know, as somebody that, you know, self-proclaims as a pedagogue. I, li I like to teach people how to teach so we can become, you know, culturally relevant and culturally competent um, 
And my question is, we have the research to support um, that we know that racism, you know, you'll have more depressive symptoms. We know that microaggressions are making it so that, you know, you're not thriving in whatever institutions. So we know what implicit bias and microaggressions and racism and discrimination does. So how do we get people to understand that spirit murdering is uh, something that is done, like you said, systematically, and is not something we can look at in isolation. We have to look at these things um, in aggregate. So it's not about the microaggression um, based on the study that you read. It's not about the laws and policies that we know are discriminatory against you know, queer people. You know, trans and gay panic defense is still an admissible um, you know, defense in court today in what, over 40 states. Um, so my question is, how do we get um, people that wanna do this work to understand that spirit murdering is more than just these isolated incidents. It's more than just what happened to you know Freddie Gray, and more. It's more than just happened to uh, Sandra Bland. It's more than these incidents. It's an amalgamation of your professor telling you that he wishes he could clone you, or your professor telling you that you know you need to take a chill pill. These are things that have been told to me um, just last week, right? Um, and so these are things that happen and add up and they're cumulative. And how do you get people to understand, especially um, white people, especially people that have um, privilege, that your humanity is constantly questioned and tested and we don't see you as a human, but we do think that racism is a thing. We do understand that discrimination is a thing. We do understand, because we've got the, you know, the research to prove it and because you know, that's the language that we have to use. How do we say, hey, I'm a person, and all of these things that have been said to me since I opened my textbook whenever I was five, um, like murder you over time. And here right now, when you're talking about bootstraps or meritocracy, I don't feel like a person because yeah. of the system that I've been placed in for years. Um, yeah. Uh, just say it. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I, I end my book with what Du Bois said. You know, Du Bois started doing his work, and he was gun-ho that he could change the minds of young folk. I mean, change the minds of this country. You know, just if I do this research, I do this, I do that. And he, he was gun-ho. Then he wrote 45 years later. They're either don't care, indifferent <laughs> about it. And so at the end of the day, as a person of color, what they can't take from us is our voice. They cannot take that from us. And so what you have to do is continue to do what you just hear, did here just now, yeah. is use your voice. Yeah. That's what it's about. That's it. Right? We will not be quiet. We will not go away. And we have to make them understand that this is also about their humanity. Yes. It's not just our humanity. This is not just my soul, it's your soul too. And so that has to always be at the forefront of the conversation. We're, we're not gonna make, you know, we can make an economic plea, we can make an education plea, but at the end of the day, this is a spiritual plea. This is a human plea. And you have to understand that your life is not full without knowing people of color and knowing who we really are just as we have to know everything about you. And we have to just make it plain and say it plain. 
And at the end of the day, if, if they don't get it, that's, what do we do with that? But you will sleep at night because you said what you had to say. It doesn't have to be rude, doesn't have to be respectful, but what you won't do is deny my humanity. And the more we talk, the better it will be. Thank you for your question. That brings us to the end of our forum. There will be a book signing in the lobby. Thank you, Dr. Love. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. We look forward to welcoming you back. All you first-timers, our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.